I have never met a minister who does not love today's gospel reading. That's because we all have our wedding stories and we love to tell them. Stories that have the exact same theme. Weddings where suddenly something goes wrong, what I would describe as holy surprises. The four-year-old flower girl quietly walking up the center aisle, the Pachelbel's cannon, suddenly stops, looks back at her mother, and in a very loud voice says, I have to go potty. The little ring bearer hands me the rings fastened to the fancy pillow with a smirk on his face. And when I try to untie them, I discover that the little rascal has replaced the fancy bow with a dozen knots. Or this outdoor wedding I did one summer, the family actually had a pet pig. Not a cute little piglet, rather a wow of a sow. The makeshift gazebo was located about 10 yards from its pen. The plan was, just after the opening prayer, the mother of the bride would sing the Ave Maria a cappella. So everything went according to plan. After the prayer, the mother began singing, and that's when it happened. Her pitch was a bit high for the audience and the pig, at which point the pig began to accompany her, grunting and snorting loudly, and he kept right on going. Well, to the mother's everlasting credit, she went with it, cordless mic in hand. She walked over to the pen, and they finished the piece together. (laughs) I believe all those unrehearsed wedding incidents are God's way of saying we may frame the events of our life. We may plan them down to the last kernel of rice. However, when all is said and done, God provides the content. God provides the spirit. Case in point, a wedding that I will never forget, the one that reminds me the most of today's gospel story. The bride was a Christian, the groom was Jewish. Now, as many of you know, Jewish weddings always include a ceremonial cup of wine made of glass. At the beginning of a ceremony, the rabbi, or in this case, the groom's father, offers a blessing over the cup at which point the bride and the groom pass the glass back and forth and drink it. And then later in the service, after they have said their vows, the wine cup is wrapped in a napkin, and the groom steps on it, crushing it into a million pieces, at which point the officiant says, may the years of your marriage be not less than the time it would take to fit these fragments of glass back together again. So that was the plan, or so we thought. And then 10 minutes before the wedding, the groom realized they had forgotten the wine. The bride's mother, a Gentile, suggested they use water instead. The groom's father was horrified at the thought. Well, the poor woman felt so bad that she tore down the street to the local package store and bought a nice bottle of rent. She made it back just in time. As the church filled up with people, she walked up to the chancel and poured the wine into the ceremonial glass cup. However, instead of the customary few sips, the well-intended Gentile mother filled it all the way to the rim. So no one noticed how much wine was in the cup until it was time to bless it. The groom's father took the full cup, thanked God in Hebrew, handed it to his son, 
and in a stage whisper said, good luck, at which point the congregation bursts out laughing. So what choice do they have? Passing the cup back and forth, they drank it every drop, and by the end of the ceremony, they both had this Beaujolais blush. One minute there is no wine, the next minute there is way, way more than enough. Enter today's gospel story, another Jewish wedding. It began with a customary processional through the village streets, family and friends escorting the bride to the groom's house for a wedding banquet that lasted several days. Now at some point I imagine the officiating rabbi or the father of the groom taking the ritual cup in his hand with intent to bless it, only to discover that it was empty. It was a huge public embarrassment for the groom's family. At which point Mary looks over at Jesus and says the equivalent of, don't just stand there, do something. Jesus replies, Mom, this is not your concern or mine. Furthermore, it is not my time or place. I am not the officiant of this wedding. Rather, I am a guest just like you. At which point, I like to believe Mary gave Jesus one of those non-negotiable motherly looks. So what choice did he have? He looks around and notices six large jugs, stone jugs, used for hand-washing for ritual purification. At his instruction, they fill those jugs with water all the way to the brim. And behold, when the stewards sampled them, they were full of wine, 120 gallons of amazingly good wine. I love what the chief steward said next. At every other wedding, they serve the best wine first. And then after everyone is drunk and doing the polka, they break out the cheap stuff. But you saved the best for last. So what's the point of this little story? Well, it's significant that Jesus turning water into wine is the first recorded miracle in the Gospel of John. I believe it's John's way of setting the stage for Jesus' entire ministry. Instead of moralizing or preaching or praying, the first thing Jesus did, his ecclesiastical coming out, was turning water into wine. Now, the stone jugs are highly symbolic as well. In fact, I believe they are the key to understanding this entire passage. Jesus takes six empty vessels used for solemn hand-washing, jars used for ritual purification for pious religious purposes. On his command, the caterers fill them with ordinary water, which is instantly transformed into extraordinary wine. You see what's going on here? Jesus takes the traditional religion of his childhood and he gives it new meaning and new life. And so I believe this story is not so much about refreshing our wine glass as it is about refreshing our religion. Jesus took solemn ritual and transformed it into a joyful celebration. Now that's my kind of religion. But it's not everyone's. Commenting on this passage, Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard put it like this, Ever since Jesus turned water into wine, 
his followers seemed determined to turn the wine back into water. Amen to that. Now more than ever, I believe this is the time to follow the lead of our Lord and refresh our religion, to lighten up on occasion, to practice a little laughter and a little joy. In fact, I believe one of the signs of a healthy church is the humility to laugh when something goes amiss on a Sunday morning service, just like it does at almost every wedding. Things like the heat going out or forgetting to light the candles. It's okay. We can relax and we can enjoy and we can laugh. To put it another way, laughter in a church is a sign that people are punch drunk on the Spirit of God. And that's why wine is a wonderful metaphor for church. Stop and think about it. A good wine doesn't happen without good stewards, without people committed to planting and tending and harvesting the grapes. People who for decades have planted, tended, and harvested God's kingdom on earth. And if it's an old church, like an old wine, it is helpful to remember that some of those stewards have passed on, how they are still with us in spirit, how years later we can still experience the fruits of their labor, how we can still taste their pride and joy in this present moment. Or this, the way that a bottle of fine wine is literally alive and ever-changing. Have you ever thought about that? how wine is a living thing, how the older it gets, the more it evolves, gaining complexity and body and depth. So a church that is truly alive should be undergoing that same process. It should be continually evolving, aging with grace and with joy. And lastly, as Kierkegaard pointed out, religion should never be bland and boring. Rather, a good religion like a good wine shares many of the same characteristics. For example, everyone loves a full-bodied wine. That's because a full-bodied wine has complex and differing flavors and notes. Because I'm a minister, whenever I hear a waiter say the wine is full-bodied, I go straight to 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul talks about the church as the body of Christ. According to Paul, a beautiful, full-bodied church is a blend of diverse and complex members. So with this in mind, how would we describe the ideal church, a full-bodied church? What would it say on the label? What would it say on Center Church's label? What do you think? How about this? Center Church is fruity, charming, lush, earthy, oaky, and a little nutty. But Center Church is also bold, woody, and warm. In addition, it is also brilliant, robust, and refined. The invitation on this second Sunday of Epiphany is to lift the chalice of your soul toward heaven and delight in the spirit of life a lush, earthy, full-bodied spirit that gladdens the spirits in all of us with love and with laughter.